Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you guys. It is almost the end of the off season, so get ready. People are coming. It's gonna be fun. It's gonna be fun this year. Um, this is like the one of the special days of the year where like two cookies can equal a, a sewing machine. It's, the economics gets thrown on its head, you know. So anyway, I got one of these, so I'm not sharing. Man, that's good. Who made these? All right. Well, <clears throat> this is the second week in the, se- the new series that we're in. We're calling the only one. We're looking at the attributes of God and exploring who He is and what that means to us. And man, in just these two weeks, I've learned personally so much. I hope I can just share just a little bit of what I've seen and, and encourage you. I, I just hope it will grow deep in our understanding of who our God is and what, what, um, what it, how it changes us to know the truth about who He is. So, we just heard a passage It's one of the most incredible things that happens in the New Testament. Uh, it's Paul, and he's at the Areopagus, which is in Athens. And Paul is one of those characters in the Scripture that I love. I, you know, this guy was an enemy of Jesus. I mean, he was a persecutor of the early church. So the church is just getting started, and they don't need more difficulty. But Paul is after them. He is trying to stop the church from, from becoming something, and uh, it, to the point of helping people be murdered who are followers of Jesus. When God gets a hold of Paul, though, man, he flips completely, right? And Paul is a guy who has a lot of problems. He's a really intense guy. He puts a lot of people off. But what is amazing about his story is that he will go into a town, and in that town, he will meet, he's never been there before, he'll meet people, he'll share Jesus with them, he'll talk about Jesus, and then he will develop enough believers that they become a small church, and then he will develop leaders out of that group, and then he will leave that church, and they will grow on their own without him. He'll go to a whole new town and start over again, church planting. That is amazing. You know, just that someone had that passion and those gifts to do that. I, I love seeing that. It inspires me. And it helps me think about what we're doing, trying to bring the goodness of the gospel to our little town. Well, Paul is, is challenged there in a place that's, like I said, it's called the Areopagus. And that was, uh, the Romans called it Mars Hill. So you may have heard of it in, the, in those terms. But the Areopagus is a place where the judges and the learned religious leaders of that uh, city would come and they would judge certain things. And, and so some of them were uh, legal issues. But one of the things that they did was they were gatekeepers of the spiritual uh, input that was coming into Athens. And Athens, as you know, was a home base, like a touch point for all kinds of religious uh, stuff that we read about, you know, from the gods that, that people study in, in English class today. So they would... Uh, they would prevent what they didn't want to come into their city by making the the proponents of some uh, religious idea or whatever come through the Areopagus. Okay? So this is where Paul is. He's been speaking in the town. People are hearing him. They're wondering about who this Jesus is because they haven't heard. He's doing his usual routine, moving from town to town. And when he gets there, uh, they say, hey, we need you to come and stand before the judges 
and tell us about this new idea that you're sharing with everyone because we need to know if we're going to stop you or let you keep going. Right? So this is a kind of a tenuous thing and they actually had quite a bit of power uh, over life and death and also just expelling them from the community. So I want to uh, read the very beginning of that one more time from Acts 17, uh, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I will proclaim to you. Okay? So Paul, I mean, how bold is that? I mean, I'm just inspired by this guy. His his, uh, ability to, to just stand up and talk about Jesus in a way that connects with the community that he's in. But he especially does it on the spot and in public, which I, I can't imagine what that would be like. But in these few verses that we're going to look at, just a few things he's going to tell them about God. A few of God's attributes, these, these character attributes of God. He's going to tell them that he's the creator, that he's Lord over everything, that he's sovereign, he has all the power, he's infinite, uncreated, self-sufficient, the giver of life, that he's relational and discoverable. He's going to say that in just a few sentences. That's all. And that's uh, a lot of where our series is going to come from. These ideas that Paul is going to talk to these people about, uh, these are the things that create the headlines that we're going to look at for the next eight or nine weeks. These characteristics of God. We're only going to look at a couple of them today and what they mean, or at least a little bit of what it means to us, perhaps. We're going to look at two in particular. One is that God is self-existent. Self-existent, uncreated. And one is that God is self-sufficient. And then, I'm trying to decide if this is like... If this is how Paul describes it as moving towards us or him moving towards us or what it means to us, that he is self-sufficient and and, uh, and, and uncreated. He is also discoverable in person. How can that be? How can the God, the infinite God of the universe, who needs nothing, be discoverable in person? We're going to look at that just for a minute today. So those are the three things we're going to talk about. He's self-existent, he's self-sufficient, and he is discoverable. Right? He has a relate. He wants a relationship with us. So let's talk about what it means to be self-existent. Uh, Paul says it this in, like this in verse 24. He says, God, he is the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord over heaven and earth. Will you leave that up there for just a second for me? He's the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to unfold an argument for these people about the self-existence of God. But he's going to do it in a way where he, he says, 
God is the creator of all things. And therefore, just logically, nothing that is created can have an impact on Him. Nothing that is created can be greater than Him. Right? So, He doesn't say, in, the, in this passage, He doesn't say God is eternal in those words. He said, nothing else was created, nothing was created except by Him. So He is eternally self-existent and creates all things. And so this forms the basic uh, kind of the arc of His argument with these people from the beginning. But he, remember, He has to not offend them. He has to speak to them in a way that doesn't uh, make, make them kick Him out of the town or stop His influence in Athens. So it's a real delicate thing that He's doing with these judges. So, he says this at the very beginning. Uh, you see, it says, it, the definite article before God. The God. The God who made the world. He starts with that. Remember, just before this, he said, you have an altar. You have altars to all kinds of gods, but you have an altar to an unknown God. And then what he does, he says, I'm going to show you who that is. I'm going to tell you about that God. Then, he sneaks it in. He says, the God. This is the God. The one God. And apparently they're not offended by that. They may not have gathered what he was saying, but when you add up everything he's saying, I think they should have been offended. The God over all of these gods. This is the God that you've been looking for. It's only him. You've been feeling your way towards this God with your development of all these other ones. Last week, we talked about the, the claim that God makes. He says, I am one. I'm one God. And when he says that, he means a whole lot of things. I'm one in terms of I'm completely unified. I'm one in that I am unique. And I'm one in that I am the only. I am the definition of only. And so Paul says, this is the God that you've been looking for. And he says, he made the world in everything in it. Well, if God made the world in everything in it, then nothing that is created can have a superior aspect to Him. Nothing. Nothing we desire, nothing we elevate, nothing we make up, no God, anything, can be superior, or should be, superior to Him. Uh, this is an idea that uh, is obviously, probably, to you throughout the Scripture. In Nehemiah, Remember, Nehemiah is the guy who goes back and builds the, uh, rebuilds the city of Jerusalem, builds the walls back up so that it can be safely developed. And they turn back to the, uh, the ways of the Lord. The people have been astray for a long time. And this is Hezekiah speaking in Nehemiah. Okay? Lots of ayahs in this. Uh, this is Nehemiah 9.6. You are the Lord, you are Yahweh. That's like we talked about last week. That's that capital L-O-R-D. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, that's everything that's created, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. I mean, this is stuff we've heard, right? But it's really important for us to try to internalize these truths. Let me try to illustrate what Paul's saying in another way. For instance, uh, you know, you might uh, 
hear a song on the radio, and you're like, that is an incredible song. You know, when I was little, uh, I would, we would go and buy the 45, right? Um, and, you know, you'd save up like a dollar and go get that thing, and you put it on your record player and play it over and over and over and over again. I tried to find it on the radio, and you would, as soon as it's on, you push, you take pause off your tape deck. Come on. Some of you old people record that song, and then you just play it over and over again in your tape deck. Well, those things, like music, like that, that we love, someone wrote those songs. At least if you had a singer-songwriter, they wrote the song, Right? And they used their skill, the beauty and the capability that God gave them. And they, and they wrote this song, and they brought instruments to it, and they produced it, and they put it on, on uh, they recorded it so we could listen to it, right? But that song doesn't exist without the writer. It just doesn't exist. It's just a combination of elements and skill and, and notes and mute, these kind of things. All these come together to create that song. It's a created thing. And no created thing can supplant or control the thing that is its creator, like a song, like a piece of art. It's created. What he's trying to tell them is if something is created, it's subservient to God all the way through. There is nothing that is greater than Him. And so he's saying something that's really quite offensive to me. God is uncreated and therefore He is self-existent. He is the Creator. But He's going to take it a step further and He's going to say that God is not only uncreated, He's he's self-existent, but He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. So if we look at 17... 24, the second half, says, And Yahweh, who is the God, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now that's hard for us to relate to, because when we say, like someone is self-sufficient, we see someone who's, who's making it on their own, and they've got their education, and they've started a business, and you know, they, they're paying the bills and planning for the future and stuff. We say, wow, that person is self-sufficient. They're doing a great job, right? But they still need food. They need all the basic lo- lowest level of Maslow's hierarchy, right? Shelter, food, what are they, John? Security, thank you. These are the basic things that humans need. And when someone's self-sufficient, they still need those things. In fact, they're sufficient because they are managing to get those things on their own. So for us, it's very hard to to, um, even imagine what it would be like to be completely without need, without any kind of need whatsoever. And that's what Paul is saying about who this God is. He doesn't need anything. Human's hands are not required. He doesn't need a temple to be contained with them. Back in 1 Kings, this is Solomon. He's praying to dedicate the temple. He says in 1 Kings, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, your heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built, this beautiful thing that I have built, cannot contain you. 
We can't create something to contain God. Now, I want to help, I want to ask you to be thinking about this, not in terms of edifices that we build, because we don't typically think in terms of that. We don't often think, well, I can contain God in something I built. But we do think that we can contain God. We do think that we can build certain things, we can make things work a certain way, we can bring our effort into the picture in such a way that we control what He is doing. I don't know if you, uh, well, I'm sure you did, you saw Notre Dame burning a few weeks ago. Man, that was weird, it was surreal to see that thing on fire. Um, I'm sure some of you have been there, and man, it is a beautiful, beautiful place. And when you take the tour, every little part of it is designed to tell a story about God, right? I mean, just every piece of it tells a story about who He is probably the most beautiful cathedral that's, that's ever been built. Oh, what, 850 years old. Just a thing. Not eternal. Not self-sufficient. Just something that men built. A beautiful thing, but only to call attention to who the real, true God is. This is pretty important to what I've seen and learned this week about this. We need to move from thinking that doing something for Him is better than recognizing who He is. If we really want transformation in our lives because we know God, it's not about what we build or do for Him or the great decisions we make, but it's about knowing who He is and the transformation that that has in our lives. That's why what we're talking about is so important. So we can't build something to contain Him, and we also can't create create something to represent Him. Let me read you this. This is from Leviticus. I'm sure many of you are reading in that this morning before you came here. You shall not make idols for yourself, in in chapter 26, or erect an image or pillar. They like to build big uh, pillars as, as idols. And you shall not set up a figured stone in your land and bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. No image is to be made at all to be worshipped, especially an image of the one true God. And this is, if you look back and think about the Hebrew people, if you know anything about them, this is one of the only things that they did right. They never made images of the true God. That just wasn't their problem. They made images of everything else. They, they chose every other kind of God, but they just never seemed to do that. Uh, I was reading in Exodus uh, earlier this week, and I came across the story of when they're in the wilderness, and Moses has gone up to meet with God on the mount, and people are down there, and they're like, wow, where is God? What is he doing? And, and what's Moses doing with him? And it's been a little while, so we need a new God. And so Aaron, Moses' actual brother, says, why don't you guys bring me all the gold that you want to bring, bring it in, and we're going to melt it down and we'll make a God. So they bring it, and he, I guess, I don't know what he was thinking, but he, he makes a calf, a golden calf, right? You've heard this story. Now, I don't know how much gold they had, but if, if it was solid gold, I mean, it wasn't probably the biggest calf ever. And why a calf? I, you know, they make a calf out of gold, and when Moses comes down and he says, this is the amazing part, and he says, what are you doing? This is 
crazy. Aaron says, well, Moses, you were gone for a little while. We got a little bit worried. And so we brought our gold together and people put it in this pot and we melted it down and out came this calf. Fully formed. That's ridiculous. They, they all knew it. Aaron knew it when he said it. Moses knew it. Nothing comes out fully formed from, from a mess, right? From the hot pot of, of, uh, of gold. But y'all, this is exactly the way we like it. When we're waiting on God, He's not doing what we want, and it doesn't come in a time that we want in the way we want, then we decide that we're going to make something and we're going to follow that thing. That's what we do. Uh, last week we looked at the verse that said the best thing you can do is know me and understand me. To the extent that we can do that, that's the very best thing we can do because when we do, we'll be less oriented towards trying to find ways to create an idol. None of us are going to make an idol, a physical thing that represents the God of the universe. You know what we might do? We might decide that something in our world, something that we want, is greater than Him and go after it. We were built to worship. He made us to worship. That's the best place that we can be, in the place of worship. And because of our sin nature, when we're waiting and it doesn't seem like it's going the way it should be, we will decide to worship something else. And out pops a golden calf and we're after it. Well, he says, you can't create something to represent him. You can't contain him in something. And he also says, not only that, but God is the maker and giver of life. So it's not just the, the inanimate objects. He's not just putting together rocks. He gives life and breath. You see how his argument is building up to the point where they've really got nothing to say? Where did this life and breath come from? The God. It all comes from him. In verse 25 of Acts 17, Paul says, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, right? He's self-sufficient. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see this in other parts of Scripture. I just want to continue to point out it's not just Paul saying this in Acts. But back in, in 1 Chronicles, David is praying. He's dedicating that temple. And he says, But who am I? And what is my people? that we should be able thus to offer to you willingly. Okay, but check this out. For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Everything is His. Everything is created by Him. Everything that has breath and life is His. He's one God, creator, giver of life, and nothing compares. I don't know if they still do this. You can tell me if you have a, a kid who's in, in elementary school or something, but when I was in, in that grade, those rural grades, when we did art class, we put on a smock. Does it still happen? Yes. Yes. Smock. I'm hearing a little bit of yes, a little bit I don't know, and I don't... Anyways, you know, so you go in there and you put this smock on, I guess so you didn't wreck your clothes before you took them home. Imagine a little first grader, you know, 
putting on his or her smock and they're going to go do the art project and the teacher gives all the materials that are necessary and maybe some glue and crayons and construction paper and some, I don't know, cotton balls for clouds and stuff like that. And it's all on the table and the kid starts putting this stuff together. And the kid's really uh, a prodigy. He makes something really, really beautiful. This little first grader puts together something amazing. And everyone's in awe and they put it up on the wall and people come and see it. What the Israelites did was exactly that, and then they gave power to that thing. They put that art project above the God of the universe. And that's all it was. So, you know, my question for myself and for you is, what what gods are we creating? What gods have you created? that are so inferior that we would say, let's let that little art project that this little kid made be the teacher. Like, let's replace the teacher who gave the materials, who set it all up, provided the smock and everything, and let's put that above the teacher. Because whenever we take anything that we think is important in this life, and is not given by him and offered back to him, and we put it up above him, that's about how much sense it makes. To put the project above the person who made it even possible in the first place. God is self-existent, self-sufficient, and finally, just a couple of thoughts on this. He is discoverable. How is it that the God that we're talking about would be discoverable to us? Things might point to him, but that we could have a relationship with him, not just sense him, but know him. So in verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. He determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, so he put people out the way he wanted to see it, that they should seek him and feel their way towards him. And yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. I feel like Paul was saying that to them, saying he is not far from each one of us. They didn't have that biblical knowledge that we have. And he's saying, there's something you're looking for, and it's the one God who's not far from you, personally, right this minute. That's amazing. In Isaiah 65, he says, I was ready to be sought, by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. It's a pretty important passage if we're wondering how God works with nations that do not know him, that haven't heard about him. Here I am, here I am. This is a call by the God of the universe to relationship. Not just awe, not just to be in awe of who he is and what he's done, but to be in relationship with him. We can't take that for granted. That's unbelievable. A call to relationship. He didn't call us to stare at him from a distance or build idols or build altars so we could like now since we have we know Jesus we don't have to have those things between us and him. 
And here's the thing. He sent His Son to bring us into relationship with Him. To bridge that impossible gap that our sinfulness made, we could not cross without Him, without God making a way. And He does it with Jesus. And here's the cool thing, and I'll close with this thought. In, in fact, let me have those that are going to, our musicians, come back up. We're going to sing a song at the end of And I want to read this to you. Jesus himself became the image of God. The God who we couldn't see, but we knew about, Jesus became the image of that God, the physical representation of that God for us. Self-existent, self-sufficient, and discoverable. I want to uh, close by reading you another part of the letter from Paul writing to the church in Colossians in chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is amazing. 